Mark chapter 5, as, as we consider. And we're looking at another narrative uh, this week. And if you remember last week, uh, Tim, our, our lead pastor, he was teaching uh, through the, the narrative of Jesus calming the storm. And if you remember what he said, that narratives, uh, they teach us two things. They teach us something about us. And they teach us something about Jesus. So as we look at this narrative again this morning, we're going to once again approach this passage from the same two perspectives, the same two angles, and look at what this passage teaches us about us and what it teaches us about Jesus. So let's read through it, and then we'll make some observations this morning. So Mark chapter 5, start in verse 1. They, that's Jesus and his followers, the disciples, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. And night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. And so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea. And they were drowned in the sea. And the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said, Jesus said to the man, he said, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth about what you say about your word, that when it goes out, it doesn't return void. And I got, uh, God, I know that that promise is not based on anything that I might do, um, God, this morning. It's based only on the, on the power of your spirit and, God, just the, the effective power of your word that works in our lives and in our hearts. So, God, I pray that you would remove distractions in our place and, and God, in our minds and in our hearts. God, that we'd be able to clearly hear from you this morning. God, I'm always painfully aware of my need for your help in this. And so, God, I just pray that you would, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, um, God, just speak to us this morning. God, we want to hear from you so that our hearts and our affection and our love for you might be stirred up, God, and that we would live in a way that makes you known. Jesus, this is always only about you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So last week we saw a major theme, and this is kind of a major theme in the book of Mark, but we saw a major theme was, was faith or, or confidence in or, or trust in Jesus. And that theme continues uh, today in, in this section, and Mark continues to take his audience to the same question. You've heard this question as we've been working through the book of Mark, and the question is this, what are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do about Jesus? Who do you say that he is? It's it's this question of faith that kind of hangs over what Mark is bringing uh, to his audience, to his readers. This section here, it reminds me of, um, remember the the ESPN Strongest Man competition? So I don't know if anybody else ever watched this. I'm the only guy. That's cool. So the Strongest Man competition where these guys from Reykjavik, Iceland, with really unpronounceable names, would move like buses. They'd pull buses around or planes or refrigerators or rocks, whatever. I don't know what the point exactly was. They were just kind of moving stuff. And I have no idea what these guys are doing now. They probably all formed a moving company. But they're, but, so they just kind of haul these big things around, right? And, uh, and it, this was a, some sort of competition. But, but the point, really, for the, at least as far as I can figure that ESPN was showing, it, is that they wanted you to marvel at the strength and the, the power and the ability of these people. And that's kind of what this section feels like to me. Mark is trying to get this audience, the readers, to marvel at the power of God. And what we saw last week and what we're going to see this week, and, and actually we'll see it next week as well, is the sovereign power of God that's on display. So last week we saw the pow- the, his power over nature. We see how he calms the storm. This week we see his power over uh, evil. And next week we'll see his power over disease and death. And what Mark is doing is he's taking us to a place where our greatest fears are being challenged by and overcome by God's greatest power. That, that intersection, and when that happens in our life, that's kind of like an incubator for our faith. But, but the, the thing about us is that we spend so much of our lives trying to avoid those areas. We, we, we want to avoid pain. We want to avoid suffering. We want to avoid loss. We want to avoid the places we're afraid. But it's in those intersections where, where, where we do feel pain, where we do suffer loss, where we are afraid, and, and, and where our faith grows. We see the power of God intersect in those places. Those are the places where our confidence in God and who he is and what he's able to do grows best. Faith grows where the powerful word of God is heard and takes root and grows. A lot of commentators say that these narratives are specifically placed where they are in Mark right after the parable of the sower to try to help to kind of illustrate that, that parable. And if you go back to that parable of the sower, we see that the point of them is the, the word taking root, growing, bearing fruit, bringing life. And so in this next kind of section here, Mark is giving examples of the power of the word of God that's spoken by Christ, spoken over storms, spoken over evil spirits, spoken over sickness. You're going to see that next thing, over death. It's, it's this faith, this confidence in Christ that drives out fear. So here's, here's the scene. And as we look at this, I want you to really kind of engage your imagination so you put yourself in the story. So you're, uh, it's not just something that maybe you heard once upon a time in Sunday school. It's not just a kind of a flannel graph, you know, m- m- memory back there, but th- that you're kind of putting yourself in, in the story. So Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at the country of the Gerasenes. And Jesus, now this is significant because he's moved into Gentile territory. And and we know that because they're raising pigs there. The Jews wouldn't have been raising pigs. And what you need to kind of picture here is the shoreline. And the best we can tell, there's uh, somewhere close to the shoreline are these these tombs. And these tombs would either be in caves or they'd be hewn out of these big rocks. And that's where they would uh, put, put the dead. 
And these particular tombs were infamous because they uh, were the home or inhabited by an infamous demon-possessed man. And the scripture tells us that this man was utterly miserable. Verse 5 shows us what one commentator calls one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. I have this man who for years, night and day, is crying out in anguish. He lives among dead. He's isolated. He's alone. He's an outcast. But what we see in this man can also be seen in us. You see, Satan and his demons, they rebelled against the glory of God, which is why they hate humanity, because we are made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that. Mankind, we're made in the, in the image of God. And what we see in the demoniac is that Satan takes great joy in debasing the image of God, in, 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 in distorting the image of God, in marring the glory of God. And we see that in these three attacks here um, by Satan on the demoniac. There's isolation, there's violence, and there's death. We see this man alone, which is where Satan wants us, and it's where sin always seems to take us, isn't it? God exists in, in perfect triune community, and he created us to live in community and intimacy with him and with one another, and Satan attacks those things. And I lead a ministry called 710. It's a young adults and college students. And um, there's a particular pattern that, unfortunately, I see all the time. And the pattern always starts like this. It always starts um, with, with a person who leaves a relationship, leaves community, gets alone, leaves a, a accountability, leaves people who love him or her, leaves truth. And it's because there's a pattern of unrepentant, habitual sin, and so that it affects, it affects their community, affects their relationships. They start to be isolated. They start to be withdrawn. And I can see it, I mean, like as clear as, as day, like a Mack truck coming down the road that I know exactly where this is going. I know this is exactly where it is because you're, you're, all the relationships that were so important to you, the, the, your small group, your community, the people who are speaking truth, the people who are loving you, and you're, now you're withdrawing from them. We see isolation. We see violence against himself. And you've seen this. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life, that a, a, a pattern of destructive uh, behaviors or attitudes in your own life that brings physical harm, brings emotional harm. Right? We see this man who lives in a world of, of death. I, I think that Satan considers this his ultimate leverage over humanity, the, the, his one trump card over humanity. Which, which makes Christ's victory over it all the more profound, I, I think. Because Satan has no more leverage in the life of the sons and daughters of God because he is a defeated foe. You can, you can kill the body. You can kill the earth suit, but no, no worries. It's just a, a rental, right? Don't treat your body like a rental car. I mean, some of you, some of you do. You shouldn't do that. But when I, when I, a few years ago, my wife and I were leading a, a small group out of, out of 710, and... Um, on one night, this gal who was on our group, she came in and uh, she had just received a diagnosis of cancer. And in a living room full of um, indestructible college students, there was quite a gasp that went over because cancer wasn't something that you would get in your 20s. Cancer is for much later in life. And she began to kind of talk about just um, her journey of um, going to the doctor, hearing that, what it was going to what it was going to be for treatment and just kind of 
how it was making her feel. And she made this, she made this statement, I'll never, I'll never forget, and she said, you know, it's, um, it's just cancer. And she wasn't being flippant, she wasn't being cavalier, because her road was, was very difficult, her treatment was very difficult, you know. Um, but what she, was, what she was talking about, what she was articulating was a confidence in what she believed about God. That God is able to do immeasurably more. And even if this body, and when this body does fade away and ultimately fail and is gone, she, she was confident in where she would be. The body is created for the glory of God. We are as a whole person to image God or to reflect the glory of God. When, when we look at uh, partnerships, when Redemption Church looks at partnerships or organizations or, or ministry or initiatives that, that serve the poor, that serve the marginalized, that serve the, the outcast, we always look at initiatives that take the whole gospel to the whole person. We believe in a, in a holistic ministry, whole life rehabilitation. We believe all of life is all for Jesus. We believe all of that images and reflects the glory of God. We also know that sin mars the human body, that, 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 both in what the Bible calls the, the bondage to decay, right? So when you go in, in, into your bathroom and you look in front of the mirror and, and you don't like what you see, that's the bondage to decay. That is not your fault, right? So just rest in that. At least that's what I tell my wife. I was like, this is the bondage to decay. I am slowly becoming one with the ground. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. It's sin. I'm sorry. So there's sin that has this kind of like external effect on us, but then there's also kind of the, the sin that we commit in our own body, right? So you take the, the sin of, of vanity, and the sin of vanity is look at my body, right? So now I become an idol. There's the sin of lust, which is look at that body, right? And now, and now they become an idol. And then, then there's the, the sin of, of coveting. I wish I had that body, right? And now it becomes an idol. And, and I use it because it always seems to be changing, kind of like what the thing is that's looking good, that's like the, the it thing in culture. I, I read a, it was actually a very encouraging article a few days ago about um, the, the dad bod. Does anybody know about this? But like the dad bod is the new hot thing. And the dad bod essentially is like, it's like a beer belly, but like sometimes you work out. Like I can tell that guy once used to kind of work out. So I, I was... I was really encouraged by that. Some of you, that's an that's a early Father's Day present there. So. And it just proves, like, if you will just kind of chill out and hang on long enough, like, culture just kind of wraps back around. So you don't have to chase it all over the place. Just sit still, chill out. Sooner or later, you'll be in again. But... So we see, we see the effect of sin on, on, on the body against the image of God, against the glory of God. And the story, verse 6, tells us that when Jesus and the disciples land on the shore, that the demon-possessed man sees them from afar. He runs out to Jesus, confronts him. And, and, and again, don't miss the, the drama or the tension in this, in this story. But because Mark tells this man, that, that he tells us that the man was so strong that no one could bind him. And what Mark is trying to show us and trying to show the audience here is that he wants to portray the power and the authority of Jesus because Jesus comes to ultimately break the shackles in this man's life. And they have this interaction, verse 7, it says that they cried out, that the, the Greek there is that he literally cried out with the, the loudest cry that he could. 
And then there's this exchange between um, the, the demons and Jesus. And the demons plead. Don't miss this. This is not a negotiation. This is not like when you're trying to put your kids to bed and they're trying to kind of negotiate for more time. This is, this is not it. They, they plead with Jesus. There is no power struggle here. There is no war or battle between Jesus and the demon because from the beginning to the end, the scene envisions the surrender and judgment of a vanquished foe. And Jesus asked him, he says, what is, what's your name? And the reply is legion. And legion in the Roman army was anywhere from five to 6,000 soldiers. It doesn't necessarily mean that there were that many demons inside of this man, but the, the point is there was a host of, of demons. He's possessed by a host of tormentors. And the irony here is that you see that this legion of tormentors say to this man, this one man, this one man from, from, from Nazarene who essentially has no credentials, he's relatively kind of unknown, unheard of, but, but this legion of tormentors say to this one man, please don't torment us. Please don't torment us. Why? Because they know who he is. The demons have fear because of their belief. The demons have fear because of their belief, because they know who Jesus is. They know what he's capable of. Now, you compare that to the way that we normally experience fear, because we normally experience fear because of unbelief. The demons have fear here because of their belief. So Jesus agrees to the request of the demons. They end up going to inhabit these 2,000 pigs. The pigs go hurling over a cliff and drown in the sea. So eventually, the town people, they get word of this, and they, sh they show up. Look at verse 15. They show up, and, and they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This is so interesting to me here because here's this man, this infamous man who for years has been howling, crying among the tombs, cutting himself uh, naked, just he's a total outcast, possessed by a legion of demons. And they run up on him and they, they see this man who has been tormented for years. They see this man clothed and in his right mind. But they are more concerned about their superstitious fear that Jesus, this Jesus is, he comes in and he kind of starts shaking things up, he starts changing things. They're more interested in him leaving and getting away from them than they are about the healing of this man. And, and it's interesting to me that they have the exact same response as the demons had to the sovereign power of Jesus. They both come to Jesus they both react in fear, and they both plead with Jesus for him to do something. And their fear is, is kind of a natural response to having experienced the presence of God. We, we saw that with the parable of the sower, that sometimes the, the experience produces good fruit, but in others who see and don't perceive or hear but don't understand, it falls on the bad soil. They, they hear it, they saw it in this man who's now clothed, he's in, his, he's in his right mind, and they're terrified, and they ask Jesus to get away from him to leave. But this man, who's, this man who's sitting here, this man who's been healed, he, he actually wants to go away with Jesus. Notice what Jesus says to him in verse 19. He says, he did not permit him, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. There's two things that we see in this man that fuel the Christian life. 
There's two things that should stand out to us. The first is that there is a strong desire to be with Jesus. Again, don't get so familiar with this story that you miss how beautiful the scene is. Here's this man. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. It, I mean, let alone, not only has he been healed, but this is probably the first conversation. This is the first just kind of proximity to, to people that he's had in years. And he sits at the feet of the Savior. And, and, and we see the love of Jesus for man. We see the power of Christ over evil. We see the victory of Christ over sin and death. We see the joy of fellowship with Christ. We see the intimacy of redeemed relationship. This man who for years cried day and night, cut himself alone, naked. Now he sits at the feet of Jesus and he says, don't leave. Don't leave. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. You're the greatest person I've ever met. Don't leave. Whatever you do, don't, don't listen to them. Don't, don't leave. There's two parts of the Christian life. One is sitting at the feet of Jesus, a desire to be with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there should be a marked response in your life that you have a desire like this man, knowing how broken, knowing how crushed you are, to be with Jesus. And then the second part is going to tell of who he is and what he's done. You love God, you obey God, you enjoy God, but then you go and tell, and that's exactly what the man did. You have here a man who is healed. He seems to have this righteous desire to follow after Jesus. Jesus says, I want you to stay right here. I want you to go back to your friends and your family. I want you to tell them what the Lord has done for you. Don't miss this. Don't misinterpret this because it's not a rejection of the man to be a follower of Jesus. It's a commissioning right there as him as a missionary to his own people because Jesus tells him literally, I want you to go to your friend's house. Go to the doorstep of your friend's house and tell him what I've done for you. And what we see here is this rich truth that where we want to be is not always the place where God wants us to be. And if that's true, you have to ask yourself the question, is there an area of my life, is there something that's particular in my life where I'm just kind of stubbornly forging ahead regardless of what God is saying to me? In fact, I haven't even considered what God's... And it could be a, it could be a right thing, it could be a good thing. This man, what he wanted was a, was a good thing. But that's not what God had wanted for him. And in your life, you might have a good thing that you think, well, I'm just going to go after it. I'm just going, I'm going to go after it. God's closing it down. Doors aren't opening. People in your life are telling you that, you that you shouldn't because God is saying, I want you to stay put. I have something particular for you to do right where you are. So, so often when we think about being on mission or, you know, being missional, it always evokes these images of the exotic place, you know, the place you need the shots and the passport for and, 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 and the place that's far away and the place that's hard to, hard to get to. That's what we want, right? We, we want the place that's going to make for the great story. We want the great Instagram photos, right? We want, like, we want that. We want the adventure of it. And I'm all for that. I think we should go to the hard places. I think we should go to the dark places and the unreached places. I'm all for that. But, but, but I think so often what God wants for us is just to do what he told this man to. Would you tell your friends what the Lord has done for you? Would you tell the people that, I, that are right in front of you? Would you, just, would you tell them? 
I think about this all the time because in my world, I'm always thinking like kind of ministry stuff, mission stuff, what's out there, where can we go, how can we get there, who do we take with us, who do we partner with, what do we connect to, what, what work can we do, what's out there, what's exciting, what's new. What, I, I think about that all the time, and I just wonder sometimes, and I feel deeply convicted about this, if God's not just sitting back and he's like, all that stuff is great, all, you know, you're really busy, you're all over the place here, but you, you know what, the people that I've put you with, the people that live a hundred steps from your door, don't know anything about me. You got stories, and you're showing videos, and you're leading trips, and you're doing this, and you won't walk across the sidewalk. When, um, when I first started working here about seven years ago, I was, um, Tyler was leading 710. Tyler Johnson is the lead pastor over all of Redemption. And Ty was leading a young adult ministry, and I just came along to kind of work alongside with him. And on Thursdays was kind of a study day for us, and we went to this bistro in Chandler. And a lot of pastors in Redemption Church uh, do this. They'll, they'll go to like a coffee shop or a little you know, restaurant or something like that, or a little place where they'll go study kind of off campus to try to maybe not get uh, interrupted as much, but then also um, to build relationships with people that aren't like necessarily church people, people that maybe aren't followers of Jesus and just kind of be out in the community, get to know these people. And so that's why we did this. And we, um, we became friends with this wait- waitress who was at the, uh, this bistro and, you know, always had conversations with her. She knew we were pastors. And so we kind of want to all talk about that. And there was this one day where um, we were talking to her and she said, yeah, my coworkers have been kind of making fun of me. They've been kind of giving me a hard time because um, I've been going to this psychiatrist. And she said, they're, they're just kind of razzing me a little bit because they said, why would you pay somebody to tell you how to live your life? And she said, I don't pay him to talk to me. I pay him to listen. And we left there and we were just sitting at church. What are we doing? What are we, what are we, what are we doing? How many people has God put in your life like that, that, that you just overlook, that you, you, you run into them, you bounce off of them, you pass them all, all the time? They are alone. They're screaming in the graveyard for someone to tell them what the Lord has done. You work with them. You go to school with them. They live right next door to you. They're at the same place that you eat all the time. They're at the same place you go get your coffee all the time you got things that you want to do for God. And so you just blitz right by him. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know what, I I bet people are kind of getting sick and tired of hearing us say like, hey, it's the, it's the small thing. It's the, it's the day in, it's the day out. It's the, it's the faithfulness in little. It's the place that God has put you. It's the little unnoticed thing. It's the humble thing. It's the small thing. It's the grinded out thing. It's the, hey, this isn't, no one's going to notice thing. It's, it's all of this. And you're probably getting sick of hearing us say that it's all the mundane and it's all the things you're already doing in, in life. That's where God wants you to be. But you know what? We can't get away from it because it's all over the Bible. Because that's where God calls his people to. He said, I've given you, what have I put in your hand? What have I put right in front of you? Who have I put in your life that's right there? And it doesn't matter if nobody else notices. God says, I notice because that's exactly what I want for you to be doing. What Mark's audience wouldn't have missed here and what we shouldn't miss is the unstoppable power of Jesus. 
This is an incredible story. I mean, there's thousands of demons depart and they're destroyed with a word from the Savior. Just like last week, the, the wind and the sea, they hush at the word of the Savior. And, and the presence of the Savior is not just reassuring because there's something that's unsettling about him there. It's, it's appropriately terrifying. There's two responses to, to Jesus here. There's fear and there's faith. There's fear in the Lord and there's faith in Jesus. And in chapter four, if you remember the disciples, they asked this question, who is this? And that question seems to be getting asked a lot in Mark, right? Like, who is this teacher? Who is this? Who, who comes to see? Who, who is this? And it gets an answer here. He, Jesus is the mighty conqueror of demons and he's the son of the most high God. The, the, the people in these stories, the people in these stories are just like us because the people in these stories, they have no power to deal with the issues in these stories. And faith reminds us of, and it gives us confidence in the ability of God to deal with things in life where we have no ability. Faith reminds us of, and it gives us confidence in the ability of God to deal with things in life where we have no ability. Do not fear, only, only believe. So often our, our fear in life comes from our belief that we are actually sovereign over certain parts of, of our life. There's a, there's a quote that says that idolatry is the victory of inferior fears. Idolatry is the victory of inferior fears. So if you take things like uh, the idols of safety and security and comfort... There's an inferior fear that those things can be attacked and, and lost, and, 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 and I, they become idols because we feel like we can actually protect them and control that, like, our, like safety is in our control, or security is in our control, or our comfort is in our control, and so we leverage everything to protect those idols. But what Jesus does is he, is he comes on the scene and he presents a loss of these inferior fears. The townspeople, they show up not with a holy fear, but with this kind of superstitious fear that like, uh, hey man, you got to get out of here because you're rattling cages. You shouldn't be rattling. And, and this presents huge threats to our safety and our security. And we don't understand what's going on, but we just are not comfortable with it. And so you got to get out of here. And it's the same thing with us. It's the same thing with us. We've talked about this in here before, but following Jesus is not the safest thing. It's not the most comfortable thing. It's not, it doesn't come with a life of security. So we've seen what the story kind of teaches us about us. We see us in the story. So as, as we close, what does the story teach us about Jesus? Our tendency in these narratives and in these stories is to hear it and, and only think that Jesus is a fixer-upper of people. Right? That if, if you come to him, he'll clean you up, he'll get you clothed, he'll give you your life back, he'll, he'll make things better for you, he'll come to him with whatever problem you have, and, and, and he'll make it right, he'll solve it. That if you got low self-esteem, that, that he'll show you how much he loves you. If you have addiction, he'll release you from bondage. And, and, and all of that's true, as long as you're okay with it not being instantaneous. Christ is the liberator, he brings freedom, that's, that's true, but he's so much more. Salvation is not simply about healing your hurts. It's that, but it's so much more. It's so much deeper than that because the Bible teaches us that we're all sinners, that we are rebels against a holy God, that we're spiritually enslaved to sin, enslaved to idols. We're enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, and, and we need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It's not just about you getting better. It's not just about you getting fixed up. It's about you going from death to life, from blind to sight, from darkness to the kingdom of light. So what is it about Jesus where, where he can forgive and restore this man? What's so unique about him? What gives him the right? What gives him the power? 
Here's what it is. At the end of Jesus' life, we see him stripped naked, bound in shackles as a prisoner. He's isolated and he's crucified outside of the city. He's shouting incomprehensible things as he's torn apart and ripped to shreds on the cruelest, most horrific form of Roman torture, the cross. And as he's murdered, he will cry out to God so that those who made him an outcast might be forgiven and brought near. This is why. This is how. This is how the demons are ultimately dealt with. Jesus can heal the demoniac because he would go to the cross and exchange places with him. He took all of those things on on himself. He was stripped naked so that we might be clothed in the righteous robes of Christ. He was cut up so that we might be healed. He was thrown into the deepest despair and agony so that we could know God's love and forgiveness and have inner quietness and peace and peace with God. Jesus is our substitute. That's how healing takes place. Because Jesus comes to share the plight of the people, to let the enemy do its worst to him. To take the full force of evil on himself and let others go free. That's what we see. That's what we learn about Jesus in this narrative. There's three things, three questions I have for you as we close. Three questions. The first question is this, is do you trust him? I mean, that's the question, is do you trust him? Are you confident in him and who he says he is and what he says he can do? Do you have faith that he's a keeper of his promises? I I know you don't understand him, which is perfect, because you don't want a God that you can understand, because that's no good. But that's not the question, is do you understand? The question is, do you trust him? The second question is, what has he done for you? What has he done for you? And maybe, maybe you didn't have thousands of demons living in you, but if you've been saved, if you've been transferred from dark to life, from death to life, you have a story to tell. You have good news to share. So if you can answer the first question and says, do you trust him? And you say, I do, I, I, I trust him. Well, what's he done for you? What's he done for you? The reason that we do the things in our service on a Sunday that we do, it's not because we're like running out of ideas to fill an hour and 15 minutes. It's because we need to rehearse the faithfulness of God in our life. We need to continue to tell the story. And we tell those stories through songs. We tell those stories by looking into the scriptures. We tell those stories through times of communion because we are so prone to forget what he, what he has done. And maybe that would be a good exercise for you today. Maybe over lunch, over lunch, across the table from the people you're on the street, can I just tell you? Can I just tell you what he's done for me? Can I, this is the best news that I, I've ever heard. This is the best news I've ever experienced. Can I share that story? Can I, can I, can I just, can we talk about that? Can I share that? Can you know that about my life? Can you know uh, how, how wretched, broken I, I, I was? And can you know, can you hear the healing story of what Christ has done in my life? How he has radically transformed me and transferred me from darkness to light? Maybe at your, your redemption community, your small group this week, maybe you just kind of take a time out in your lesson. You say, can we, can we spend some time talking about what he has done? Can you re- rehearse that story? What, what has he done for you? And the third question is, who needs to hear it? 
Who in your life needs to hear it? I, I, I pray that God right now by his spirit is just, that, that person is just lighting up in your, in your brain and that it's heavy on you. That you see a face, that you hear a name, that that is the person and it's the person that God has just put right in front of you. Who needs to hear? And, and, and if you can answer those first two questions, do you, do you trust him? And, 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 and you can rehearse what he's done for you. And you put that stack over here. And you put your stack of excuses of why the person who needs to hear hasn't heard yet or doesn't hear from you. There's no comparison, is there? Who needs to hear it? Who needs to hear it right now? Who is, who is the Spirit of God bringing to your mind? And they need to hear what he has done. They need to hear about how the Lord has had mercy on you. This, um, this story here to me is a, is a portrait of communion. We celebrate communion here every, every week. And I think at the table, you see what we saw in this man. We see a, an opportunity to come and to sit at the, at the feet of Jesus, to eat and to drink and to remember him. First Corinthians chapter uh, 11, Paul says, whenever you do, you proclaim the Lord's death. And that's what Jesus called for here. You, we want to be with Jesus. We want to proclaim what he has done. Jeremy's going to come now and lead us in a time of communion. Let's pray. God, I thank you for um, the good news of who you are, what you have done, God, what you promised to finish God, I pray for those who, um, you know, they, they've heard what we talked about last week, they hear this week, and um, God, they just feel like their faith is so weak or maybe even not existent. And so, God, I just pray that you, by your, um, your spirit, God, that you would just grow our faith, that you would grow our confidence and our trust in you. Jesus, I pray that we would be like this man. I pray that we would have a desire to be with you, and God, that we would be obedient to go and tell, uh, tell others of what you have done. Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.